I began actually implementing this in the classroom. I began saying, okay, do we actually need the Holy Spirit here when we interpret? Do we need to pray before we read the Bible? Does our posture that we come with to the Bible, our beliefs, our posture of heart actually make a difference for when we read? It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Have you ever had a hard time reading the Bible? Not that the words are hard, maybe not even that the ideas are hard, but somehow the process has become, dare I say it, dull. What do you do then? I mean, seriously. You know the stories, you know the benefits, you know the arguments, you've been through all of that before, and yet you still feel like you're going through the motions. You know, what if I told you that many other Christians are struggling with the same thing that you are struggling with right now? That you and I both, at times, if we are strong enough to admit it, have a Bible problem. And I'm not talking about people who don't think that the Bible is important, but the ones who do. Sometimes those of us who say we believe the Bible is true have a really hard time knowing what it's for and what to do with it. I think we've all experienced that at one time or another. If you have listened to this show for any length of time, you know that we take the Bible seriously. It is the very foundation for how we know about God, his salvation, who we are, the church, no matter when or where it is, determines what we believe and how we are to live that out. It's how individual Christians are shaped by God. The word of God matters, but too often... We reduce it to something to be studied on the one hand or something that will fix all of our problems or make us feel better on the other. Today, I'm talking with Andy Abernethy, Old Testament professor at Wheaton College and author of the book, Savoring Scripture. And as you will soon find out, a basketball junkie, which makes me extremely happy because I really do thoroughly enjoy the game of basketball. It's my favorite sport. However, What we talk about today is the Word of God and how to read the Word of God. And if you've ever struggled with your Bible reading or you lead people who do struggle, I think that you are going to thoroughly enjoy this conversation. It's fun, practical, and a great reminder of why we are supposed to read the Bible in the first place. Now, let's get to my conversation with Andy Abernethy. Happy listening. Andy Abernethy, welcome to Apollo's Water. It's great to be on. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Not sure, but let's give it a try. So reading through your book, I found some questions and subjects that were specifically exciting to me. So here we go. Number one. Number one. The best basketball player to ever come out of the state of Indiana, not named Larry Bird, is? Wow. Oscar Robertson. I I think he's proud of Indiana, right? 
Is he from Indiana? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, okay. <laughs> you put me on the spot. I, I should know this. My my dad played uh, NBA basketball, but it's not going to be my dad. You know, when I was growing up, there was this huge rivalry between Glenn Robinson and Alan Henderson. They were great players. They had great college careers and played for a long time in the NBA. But I'm trying to think of uh, someone other than Larry Bird. You got you got any ideas in mind? How about Sean Kemp? Sean Kemp's uh, not bad. He broke Sean all Kemp. his records. Yeah. yeah. You were a baller. I saw you had a D1 scholarship in the University of Pacific, right? Yeah, I, I played some hoops. And, you know, Indiana's a great state for, for basketball. But, yeah, I mean. It, Who did you root for then growing up, college ball? Yeah, I, I rooted for Indiana Hoosiers. So my dad went there and he was part of the 1976 championship team. Last team to go on. Isaiah to, Thomas? No, that this was this, oh, this was like Quinn that. Buckner, Scotty May. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're the last team that's gone undefeated for an entire season in college basketball. So when you grow up in Indiana with a dad who was a starter on that team, played for Bobby Knight, like <laughs> I grew up going to games, sitting right behind the bench and you, you, you cheer for, yeah, IU basketball for sure. It, but the hard thing was like, who do you cheer for in football if you grew up in Indiana <laughs> and a university fan? So I grew up Notre Dame football fan, IU basketball. You have to, you have to. So I grew up not too far from you. Uh, okay. I didn't, I, I'm from uh, Illinois, but I grew up 45 minutes south of Champaign-Urbana. Okay. So the photographer for the Fighting Illini, his son was a year behind me in school. So we had all the Illini at, wow. talking about the Flying Illini, 88, you know, 89, I remember that battle. Kendall Gill. Oh, yeah. 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 Those were some, I mean, I still mm. feel cheated in the final four by Michigan. Oh. Uh, oh, that was rough. But you're a pescatarian. So what is the best fish to eat and why salmon yeah i love salmon one of the reasons it's not too fishy flavored and it has a usually it's pretty meaty you know so it does you can get a nice you know bite out of it that it's not all falling apart and and too thin and has those great fish oils in it so yeah so and it's easy to prepare you so no salmon i like salmon All right. Question number three, because you are a Bible scholar and specifically within the Old Testament, if you are an Old Testament book, what Old Testament book would you be and why? Oh, man, if I were a a book, I mean, uh, my specialty is the book of Isaiah. That's the book I love uh, the most. And the reason I would love being that book, if I could imagine it, (laughs) is you kind of get a lot of shock and awe, you know, you're like, imagine if you're a tour guide at a movie theater and you're like, Hey, Oh, look at this. It's just so intense in some parts of it, but then also so like gloriously hope filled. And I think it'd be fun to be this book. And also I would just say, it's probably one of the most read books in the whole history, uh, you know, out of the Bible. I mean, it, it's one of those books that was circulating in synagogues when, you know, they couldn't have copies of every prophet, but Hey, we we're going to get the prophet Isaiah and it was important for the church. So I'd love to be, yeah, the prophet Isaiah or the book of Isaiah. All right. How about this one? The coolest basketball team to ever play going back to basketball. Cause I know that you were basketball and I don't, I don't get to ask basketball questions very often. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I don't get to talk basketball much on Bible podcasts. So I'm happy to do so. This is great. <laughs> Okay, so the best basketball team to ever play was what? Or who? 
I mean, the best basketball player was, was Michael Jordan and those teams that, that he had in the, uh, nineties, I mean, were just incredible. So I, I'd have a hard time imagining yeah, any team better than them within their given era. So number five, this one's a weird one. I've never asked this one before. If you were an aisle in Home Depot, what aisle in Home Depot would you be and why? Man, what a great... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a great question. <laughs> you know, the association of what's the last aisle I've been in, man. I was fixing our toilet, so uh, I, I, I can't go with that one. I, I would be kind of the outdoor power tool area, like lawnmowers, power washers, that sort of section. So I, I, I like that because you, you actually don't have to be assembled. You're already put together <laughs> or at least you're supposed to work. And, um, and then you'd get, and, and your task would be clear and you'd, uh, and, and you get to do, I like working outside. So, yeah. Well, I was reading a little bit about your biography. That's how you, because you play, you went to University of Pacific yep. and you were redshirted and then you go to Bethel yeah. in Indiana. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. But you gave out basketball and wasn't part of that because you had an eye injury? Yeah. A lot, a piece of a lot of equipment. Yeah, actually that, do I talk about you? You found that online somewhere? I do, I do my research. Man, you, you research, found that out. Andy. This is a That's story. Rolls at Apollo's water, baby. Man, you're a good researcher. Yeah. So I, <laughs> yeah. So I redshirted my freshman year at Pacific. I Michael played. Little candy had just left the candy. Yeah. Man. The candy man. And then I played my first semester. I, I was on the team at our first semester of my sophomore year was, was at Pacific. And during that time, I, I really turned back to the Lord and uh, it was a, really huge moment for me to really know the grace of God after being in a season of rebellion and really just cast my life on the Lord. So I left not knowing where I would go to. I just knew I needed to get out of the environment. I was in at Pacific and needed kind of a fresh start where it'd be a Christian environment. So I ended up at um, Bethel College. They had a player just happened to leave midway through the season and a scholarship was open and, and it turned out to be a wonderful place for me to grow in my faith. And I started playing there and I started, you know, kind of getting a little bit of my game back and <laughs> I had maybe 15 points in one game. And, you know, everyone's like, all right, we got this D1 transfer. He's going to help us, you know, and and it was already a really good team of good players. And then the next day after a good game, I, I landed on a player's foot in practice and was just busted my ankle and was out for like three months. So my sophomore year didn't do much with basketball. And then I was coming back from, from that uh, injury and training all summer and getting ready for my junior season. And I was serving at a church uh, by then and I was like helping prepare for a baptism service. And the, this couple said, yeah, we need a little yard work done. And I take a weed eater and a little, it was a metal bladed weed eater and a little piece of metal just flew up from that and got me uh, right, right through the eyes. So Whoa. yeah, it, it was crazy. So here I am, the, this guy whose dad was an NBA player not quite having a college basketball career like you'd hope, 
but it was, it's kind of like God's perfect sort of way of like weaning me from the things of this world and just really forming and casting me on the Lord. And that's when I was reading the scriptures for the first time to meet with God. And so I came back from the basketball injury. I wasn't allowed to do any physical exercise, like not even running for like six months, just because some, it's a long story why. And then I came back like in November, the team was already going and I worked my way into the starting lineup by January and was just a solid role player. And in the last game of the season, I was boxing a guy out. I was wearing these big James Worthy goggles. You remember James Worthy? I know. Yeah, yeah. And a guy just on the other team gets his thumb somehow behind my goggle and gets me right in the, that eye and my retina detached and had to have a whole bunch of more surgeries. And the doctors are like, you know, your eye is just too vulnerable. Like, you know, you can't play your senior year. So my college basketball, you know, experience wasn't kind of how, I would have scripted it. That's for sure. But it's it's in hindsight, you know, you can really see how formative that, that season of life was. And really I, we're going to be talking about my book later (laughs) here in this podcast is those early moments of really meeting with God during a time where, uh, and reading scripture, we're really wrapped up in not only repentance and trying to kind of grow out of a life of sin, but also, wrapped up in trying to figure out who I am, what my identity is when your body's not working like it should, when you're dealing with uh, different mental health challenges and then also have these basketball is, isn't, you know, mounting to maybe what you had hoped it would be. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You're talking about your life and that had to have been very difficult to go from, I mean, being a twin is hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I'm not a twin, but just having been around a lot of twins in my life and then to have your dad have such a big shadow and then your brother was a baller. Yeah. And then to have that shift for you. I mean, how did God lead you from basketball to really old Testament in the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> That's a big transition. Yeah. 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 Great, great question. So when I transferred there to Bethel college, I honestly, I, I had like a 0.8 GPA 
my final semester of my sophomore year, first semester of my sophomore year at, um, at Pacific. And that, that's just a reflection of not going to class and everything. And so I was barely eligible to play. And so the coaches are like, what major can we put this guy in that he's going (laughs) to stay eligible? So they put me in the easiest major on campus, which I won't say what it is just in case anybody out there would be offended. But they also, part of their general ed requirement was you had to take a Bible class, you know, intro to the Bible or intro to Old Testament, intro to New Testament. So here I am like, trying to grow as a disciple. And I like thought, Hey, I've always heard I should read the Bible. I'm reading. So I'm going to start reading it on my own. And I got a mentor to kind of help me with that, another student, and then started taking classes on the Bible. And I'm like, man, this is just so great to be growing in my faith and learning to read scriptures. And then pretty soon I started taking more classes and eventually my major shifted to where I could kind of have a Bible uh, concentration for a a more general liberal studies major. And what was going on during that time, I, I couldn't have articulated it initially, but what I began to see gradually was that I was really benefiting from the Old Testament while I noticed all my friends were like reading the gospel of John and James or reading James or Philippians. And I began as I was going to churches realizing, man, the Old Testament rarely is being preached on. And here I was loving the Old Testament. And so I, I thought to myself and pretty quickly felt a call to ministry of God's word. You know, by the time my junior year was finishing, that was pretty clear. I wouldn't have said I was going to be a professor, that's for sure. (laughs) And that love for the Old Testament, that love for meeting God there, I think is, was planted during that time. And I took a Hebrew class, just, I could only take one semester in my senior year of college. And I just loved it. For some reason, all the squiggly lines, writing right, reading right to left and all the weirdness of it was just so appealing in part because it was God's word. Then when I went to seminary, that love for the Old Testament continued. And when I was a youth pastor for three years after seminary, I would kind of be preaching through books of the Bible. and I'd be doing a lot of Old Testament stuff with my students and seeing the Lord bless that. And I can then, just see you in youth group. Hey, everybody, turn to Leviticus 1. Yeah, we're going to start here. <laughs> Let's start with Let's Leviticus. Start with the purification laws. Yes, yes, Exactly. Well, let's, let's talk about those, right? Um, the burnt offering. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I, I did a whole, um, <laughs> it's, it's like, wow, that was really ambitious. <laughs> I spent a whole year preaching every Sunday morning. It was a large youth group. So you kind of had to do like small group stuff Wednesday nights, but Sunday mornings was like a, you know, more like a service. So preaching I think I called it God's redemptive story. And I was going to work through the whole Bible and kind of just take the kind of key moments, key passages all along the way. But what it turned into it, we never got to the New Testament. It was just, we were really laying that foundation in the Old Testament story. This is the youth group? Youth group, high school youth group. And I even I even gave him a test at the end. I, I don't know what. <laughs> so, um, so what, what, I mean, what's it? 
Like you gave them a test, but my question is, is what happens if they failed it? Like, sorry, <laughs> sorry, you don't get to move on forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I have these 150 students, you know, coming in and I'm just, but, but I think that what I did, that did is I began to see, wow, that this is actually nourishing God's people. I, I actually had to, you know, really enjoyed it. But there's a professor at Trinity, a guy named Dr. Van Gemmeren, who had, who I had just really looked up to. I'm like, man, if I could, at, like, I, I, I was a good student and I thought, man, maybe I could do a PhD someday. I don't know. And then I said, but if I ever do, I want to end up being like Van Gemmeren. And then Van Gemmeren took, he said, why don't you come study and do a PhD here with me sometime? And I'm like, man. Well, now, now or never, I'm not, I wasn't married yet by the time I was 27 and thought this may be a good time to do a PhD in Old Testament. So I did it again, didn't know if I'd go back into church ministry or if I teach overseas as a missionary or what, but really sense more than anything, a calling to like devote myself to studying the Old Testament so that I could serve God's people and this part of the Bible that God's given us be recovered for the good of the church. So, yeah, so that's kind of my mission where that Old Testament uh, focus grew out of. When I was young, my daddy said, gotta keep one eye open in your bed. Well, that leads us to your book. Yeah. Lead us to your book, Savoring Scripture, A Six-Step Guide to Setting the Bible. So what, what made you want to write this book? Why do you feel like this book was necessary to write? Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. So savoring scripture is like written for so many reasons. Okay. So let me give you a couple of the, the key kind of elements that led me to write the book. And and just for those who haven't read it to know, it's not an exclusively old Testament book. It's really a book that is designed to like, say, okay, you want some guidance, you want a game plan on like how to read the Bible. Here are like kind of six steps to keep in mind as you're trying to read scripture. And what this grew out of was uh, a couple things. I'll start with the first story I tell in the book. My my dad, uh, who, I, who we talked about earlier, became a Christian when I was, when he was probably in his late thirties. So this was after MBA time, like, here's my dad, like this well-known basketball player, like turning to Christ. And he became a Christian through studying the Bible. He was invited to a Bible study fellowship, studied the gospel of John, became a believer. And so like studying the Bible and going to Bible teaching churches after that has been like a big part of our family DNA. So fast forward from my dad becoming a Christian, you know, 20 years. And then here's my dad and I having a conversation, you know, probably in November or December. I'm like, hey, so dad, what do you want for Christmas this year? And and by then I'm a, I think I was back from Australia. I was teaching there at a, a professor there at a, a seminary called Ridley College. And um, my dad says, Andy, how would you, would you be able to get me a book that like just kind of help me read the Bible better and get more out of reading the Bible? And I think what that moment did for me was like, 
first of all, I started indexing in my brain, like, okay, what book could I, a Bible professor, <laughs> apply with, give with confidence to my dad that it's going to actually give him what he's looking for? And my brain kind of went in the academic direction, even the ones that have sold, sold well uh, among the general public. What often happens is in those books, they'll give you like some really good insights from the academic kind of study of the Bible, you know, such as you got to read the Bible according to their genres and their genres are part of how they worked in their ancient world. And you need to read it according to what it meant, not according to what it means today. You need to. And so what happens is there's this kind of distancing that, that in the academic training is studying God's word that happens between a reader and the Bible. Okay. You got to really read it according to that original context. And I feel like if I gave that book to my dad, he would end up like this with the Bible. He maybe could intellectually understand it a little bit more clearly. And he, he certainly would have been capable for understanding it. But I think what his deepest desire would have been is to like actually read it and think about how this understanding it better helps him know God more and live more faithfully in, in his life. And that's often left out. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you'd have kind of more fluffy books that are not going to give him what, what he needs. So I didn't think I'd be the person who wrote that book, but it, you fast forward after that conversations, maybe six years or so. And God had taken me on a journey from my academic study, teaching how to read the Bible and Bible classes for you know, a number of years by then. And God was beginning his own journey in my life of saying, you know, Andy, there's been a gap growing between you and me as you read the Bible. You're reading the Bible a lot just to kind of figure it out, know what it says, analyze it, really get a feel for its original sense. But it, there's a barrier here between you and me and what I want to be saying to you through these words and how I want to be meeting with you through them. And so as I began my own process of recovering a lot of what I'd experienced in those early days of reading the Bible, uh, scholars would call it, you know, a second naivete, you know, the second recovery of childlikeness the Lord began kind of putting different pieces into place for me that go beyond typically what you would be taught in a, a, a normal academic classroom for how to study the Bible. And I began actually implementing this in the classroom. I began saying, okay, do we actually need the Holy Spirit here when we interpret? Do we need to pray before we read the Bible? Does our posture that we come with to the Bible our beliefs, our posture of heart actually make a difference for when we read or, you know, tapping into different practices, which I'm sure we'll get to about Lectio Divina, how to kind of meet with and meditate on scripture or thinking about how to respond to this in our everyday lives. So I began implementing this in my classes and the students were just like, loving it because they're in the midst of training and those hard skills, you know, of learning to academically studying a passage original in its original historical context. And they're sensing that gap between them and God growing. And so this book is kind of birthed out of a desire to bring together the kind of spiritual readings to meet with God 
and some of the best of the ac- academic tools that are accessible for for the church as a whole. So that's kind of what my heartbeat is behind the book is to to bring together a vision for interpreting the scriptures to really meet with the Lord and live re- faithfully in light of it while benefiting from um, thinking about things like historical context or genre or flow of thought in a passage or, you know, that sort of thing. All my burdens hide on the wrong side of a ride Beneath the open sky With the clouds painted white Where I'm fighting to fight But I'm alright Not learning to live Learning to die And one of the things that hit me right at the very beginning was in the introduction where you mentioned uh, the approach that one has and you wrote this god has given us a bible that is for the hungry for those desperate enough to depend on him for provision and who will exert great mental energy or endure seasons of dullness to eventually taste some honey mm-hmm. why is it so important for us to keep that perspective as we go to the word of god yeah, 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 I think there's a couple reasons. First of all, I think that if we take the whole Bible into account, one of the threads that you see continually is that God's people aren't listening to God. That, that's a regular thread throughout the book, right? Or throughout the Old Testament. The prophets came and spoke to them. They're not listening. They're not listening. They're not listening. But then you see. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in this posture of receiving and contrast her with the Pharisees who maybe had it all figured out and they could have passed any Bible test, but weren't coming to the one to whom they revealed. So, so I think this posture of Mary, and I use the idea of childlikeness where Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So if, if that's the case, and, and I talk about a passage in Matthew that where Jesus praises God that he's hidden things about himself, if you will, that are really recognizing, embracing that Jesus is the Messiah. He's hidden these things from the wise and learned, but has made them known to little children. And I, so I think that like why this perspective of coming as the desperate or coming as the lowly prevents us from like falling into that trap of pride that like reading the Bible is all about us exerting our mind and figuring out God. But in reality, as Paul says, you know, apart from the spirit of God, we can't know God. We need him to make himself known uh, to us. We need to depend completely upon him. And so I think that that posture, I think, uh, of humility seems to be that kind of, if you will, that soft clay that God's ready to work with 
And I, I think that God is wiring brokenness and difficulty and hardship into all of our lives, even if you're the most posh person in the in Deerfield living next door to Michael Jordan or you're on the south side of Chicago where you minister. He's inviting us towards this dependence. And when we're in that moment of dependence, trusting that he'll feed us. On the other hand, in that quote that you read, and and I'll maybe read it again for our listeners, because there's a lot hacked in there. But there's also who will expend great mental energy to taste some honey. The one there's this sort of dichotomy between like knowing we need to come with this lowly posture. But the more I study the Bible, the more I'm like, God, you did not give us a little easy children's book (laughs) that you can like readily understand. I've just finished writing a commentary through the prophet Isaiah. It's like piecing together how these lines relate to each other and different pericope to pericope and how, how this book has come together. I mean, it is, it does demand something of our kind of investing ourselves in it. It's not like we sit back as these receptacles and, and just turn our brain. It's like some people will treat, you know, the body in more of a dualistic or Gnostic way where, okay, to do a real good spiritual reading, you actually need to turn off your brains <laughs> and then just like in the, the further you can get from using your brains, then the more spiritual opportunity there is for the spirit to receive um, or to, to, to get through to you. But that's not how God works. God, God has given us a Bible that does require and involve us and invite us into this joyful journey of carefully thinking and where you're just um, carefully giving yourself to to try and understand what God's given us through the Spirit's help and guidance. So, yeah, so those are the kind of elements, I think, that that are key uh, as we're, we're entering into the yeah, study of Scripture. Be here at my shoulder Be here in my side Be here when the cold night falls And in the morning light Be here in the autumn When all the colors call Be the burning memory of all the summers gone. So you have the six steps. What are the six steps for our audience? Yeah, so I'll list them and then we can go with where you went from that. So the first step begins with posture, that when we come to read the scripture, we are coming with a posture where we're depending on the Lord to make himself known to us when we read the scriptures. The second step, then we imagine turning to a passage of scripture and you're thinking, okay, now what do I do? I'm ready to receive. I prayed. You look for the flow of thought. So that's step two. And I give a couple of guidance pieces of guidance on how to do that. And this, this is for my students, usually the most 
kind of important part for them is figuring out how like to move beyond just looking at individual isolated verses to actually tracing the flow of thought across a passage by looking at kind of what genre this is written in, but also looking for the different subunits, the different portions of thought in a passage and how those are working together. Once you've stepped to have a good feel for the flow of thought of the passage, then in step three, it's time to situate that passage within co- uh, the context it's given us in. On the one hand, it's given to us in a historical context. Okay, when was this written? Uh, where would you place this kind of in a timeline? Where was this written? Do we see anything geographic going on? And then also, like, what was the culture like at that time? Just to be able to understand how God was speaking to people through this passage in real times, in real places, written by real human authors who lived during that time. So we think historical context, but then the other aspect of context, which is kind of 3B, is the literary context. Okay, where is this passage within the the book that it's placed within? So if you're looking at Ephesians 2, how is that fitting into the whole of what Ephesians is up to? So once you've kind of looked at kind of your passage within its context, then it's time to recognize, okay, God hasn't just given us individual passages as part of individual books, but he's also given us these these books of the Bible as part of a whole Bible. So step four is whole Bible, thinking about how the passage that you're interpreting is fitting into this whole Bible, two Testament canon that's centered around uh, the person and work of Christ in his first and second coming. So that's uh, step four. Then in step five, uh, the image I use is like, wow, you've done a lot of work plating up this beautiful meal. And if you stop after step four, you're walking away from eating the meal. Step five is it's time to feast. So step five is called savoring God. It's kind of drawing on the scripture that you've just studied and and carefully read and meeting with the Lord through that. And I I draw upon some categories from what's called Lectio Divina, where Lectio is the study part. um, And then these three other parts to that involve praying, meditating, and contemplating the word. And so in this, you're, you're praising God in light of who you're seeing him to be. You're really kind of at this point being forced to recognize, hey, there's a God who exists outside of this text, a God that these scriptures are bearing witness to, and you're now engaging with him in light of what his word is saying. And then in step six, it's time for faithful response, uh, thinking about what does it look like to respond faithfully to what God's word is uh, saying. So, yeah, so those are the six steps uh, I, I set out in the book. You've mentioned so much you've actually answered several of the questions I wanted to ask, but you mentioned faithful response that the last and final step, you specifically draw out this idea of application and you chat, not challenge it, but you want to redirect it, reshape yeah. it because application seems to have taken on a different meaning in which you think that, I mean, you, you mentioned that we've, we've become so consumed with application, how to apply it and a, there's a better way to go about it. And that's the faithful response. Mm-hmm. Why did you feel that we needed to see that instead of the application idea? Yeah, yeah. Good idea. Good good question. So it, I think when you when you think about the idea of application, 
it's built around this kind of model of like, okay, I'm going to study a text that's really distant from me. And then it's going to be kind of up to me after I've really figured out what it meant to draw out a principle or a theme and then connect it into my world. Think about what it would have meant today. And I think that there's something true and legitimate about kind of that sort of idea of application. Um, but I want to reframe that around the idea of faithful response. And what this does is a couple things. The first thing it does is it personalizes the fact that we're, when we're reading the Bible, we're not just trying to like kind of draw something out, but we're actually responding to a person, to a living God who is speaking to you through that passage. And we're asking, what would a faithful response look like to what God is saying through this passage? So, so it brings the focus more upon what God might be saying and is saying than upon some tech, something I need to do to figure out how it connects to my world. So, so it brings a personal element in and brings what God is doing more in it. The other thing it does is it gives more of a vision for what the scriptures are trying to, God's trying to do through the scriptures in our lives. Sometimes with application, it can be kind of very, I don't know, moralistic or kind of pragmatic in some respects and may lend itself to certain types of kind of responding to God's word. But what we have in the scriptures often is already embedded within the scriptures themselves is an invitation for us to respond. What would God and inspiring the original author would have expected in terms of a response from its readers. And we tend to want to focus on what this past, what we should do, what sort of action step we should always take. So if I'm reading a passage about when God parted the, the Red Sea, okay, what's the action step? Okay, your action step is you need to be like Moses and hold out your staff <laughs> and and trust that God is going to part your Red Sea. You know, I I I don't know, you know, how how do we take this sort of action step? But what if a faithful response would be and, and I give these these categories of uh, what if a faithful response is that God wants you now to look through the lens of the scripture and see your world and see him differently. What if the response is that you actually begin going through life viewing God as one who actually has done this for Moses and that this is the same God who's at work in your world, in your life today? What, what if it's a matter of transforming you theologically into seeing in new and better ways or what if I, I also use the idea of being what what if god is actually through scripture shaping your virtues so that there may not be like a direct like okay therefore thou shalt go and be humble <laughs> but what if like as you're reading you find the lord just shredding you of your pride 
and shaping you into be someone who's looking more and more like Jesus Christ. So I want to just give more room for how God's word might work other than kind of maybe like a, what we, a trap we'd fall into with kind of simplistic interpretation. So I know that you're, you have Van Hooser background and I think you can hear some of what I'm, I'm doing here um, that's pushing us beyond typical uh, application, but, but Van Hooser uses this idea of, and I don't talk about this in the book, but we're kind of become like improvisational actors who upon reading the Bible, we, we know the script so well, we know our God so well, we've been formed to be able to and empowered by the spirit to be able to live according to the script he's given us that, you know, we're able to kind of, to live, live it out in light of the, the story that's unfolding as we're, willing to see and engage in the world as God's inviting us uh, to do. I think that's something that so many people need to hear today is, is not just that it, that the Bible is this propositional book, these facts about God, but it's really an invitation to see him work and then to join him in that work. And one, one of the things that we talk about a lot on our, our, our show and in our ministry is enact the scriptures, to live it out, yeah. not, not just as a means of learning the facts again, but as you said, the improvisational actors where God allows us to be a part and he delights in communing with us. You also mentioned that this idea of hearing God. Mm-hmm. And I, I picked up Dallas Willard's book, Hearing God, just the other day. And I'm amazed at the, the memes that come out from two camps. Mm-hmm. in within evangelicalism there's the you're misinterpreting that text leave it alone it's all about god and then there's the the complete other side which it's all about me mm-hmm. and it's it's it seems like both are wrong mm-hmm. in that god and this this is what willard says god longs to commune with you yeah. he knows the details of your life he doesn't want you just to learn the facts about him Mm-hmm. It's an invitation to a loving relationship and communion as he shares the redemption story and invites you to be a recipient of that story, yeah. be a participant in it. Yeah. As a Bible professor, what do you often see wrong? The viewpoints that your students have is, are they in those two camps too, where you have the extreme of everything's God, you're taking it out of context and you're not allowed to do that. When the other one, no, this is what it says to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do we avoid those two extremes so that we have this acute familiarity with the storyline and the narrative and the story, but also see that God longs for us to be a participant? Yeah. In it? I, I think that's such a good diagnosis of, I, I guess, the extreme kind of the extremes, you, you know, you, you have some people, especially students coming out of more reformed traditions who everything is, is going to be about what God's doing. God is the hero of the story. Humans are bad. <laughs> like, so don't. Really yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that they see something absolutely true in scripture. I teach the Old Testament. It's failure after failure after failure. But on the other hand, there are actually occasions where you do see positive examples that we're meant to emulate. And some of these bad examples are meant to help guide and speak to us and shape us from following into those same 
paths of going away from the Lord. So they don't just diagnose our sin and show we just need God to be our hero. It, it, it's kind of both. You know, on the other hand, yeah, people are kind of view the Bible, you know, as really being uh, all about them. And it, God is so gracious to meet us all where we're at, right? And don't want to make people feel like they God hasn't been speaking to them even in that what I see from my students is this is where most of them are coming from. They've been taught a very kind of moralistic way of reading the Bible and, or they'll, they'll do what I call the Ouija board approach to reading the Bible where you kind of just hover over a passage <laughs> until something like pops out at you. And then, Oh, that's the spirit at work. And, and, and God's speaking right to me, you know, and, and what they miss out on is this larger story. So I have this point in the semester where it's right around the halfway mark and the students are fried. They are ready for spring break. They are ready for, and I realize I can't get much accomplished that week. And so it falls right when we're covering first Samuel. So what I do, I sh have them watch a VeggieTales movie, uh, uh, Dave and the Giant Pickle where it reenacts like David and Goliath scene. And I say to, so we watch it. And then afterwards I say, okay, I know that was fun, you know, but this is college. So we're going <laughs> to think about this critically. And some people are like, what are they teaching there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the professor is. Yeah. Yeah. And then he, uh, we're paying this much money for that. And, and so, so all of them love it. They're just, it's exciting for them. It feels like a little break, but then I'm like, all right, I want you to talk in groups based on all the principles and interpretation we've talked about. What do you think is really good here or, and what's missing? And one of the biggest themes in that little episode is it has this refrain, little guys can do big things too, you know, and right. hey, even if your little guy can do something big through your life and so forth and so on. And it's, it's interesting how the students have trouble miss, they miss something even bigger. They, they, they have trouble evaluating it. Because they think it feels right. It feels appropriate. But if you ask the question, okay, why was this written? Do you think that all the future Israelites, when they read that, thought, I want to be the next Dave. I want to be the next <laughs> one who fights Goliath, you know? What's happening in the story is situated in the book of King or Samuel where you've just had a king who was not aligned with the Lord and therefore is getting going to get removed. And David has just been anointed as, as this king who you're hoping will be a king whose heart aligns with the Lord. And then here we see a king whose heart is aligned with the Lord taking on Goliath. And I think they would have said, oh, we, oh, for a king like this, whose heart aligns with their God, like David was. Oh, for this king, you know, and you miss this sort of larger story, right? Of a, a God, our God who is, and ultimately, of course, as we see with David, he has his failings too. Um, 
but it, it can be this larger story is often um, missed out on it. And it's those moments for my students that they're like, yes, yes. This, this is a, more about me just reading the Bible and getting some little application point out of it. This is about me stepping into a much bigger story of redemption and knowing my savior and my God, what he's done and what he, and um, so, yeah. So I think those two camps you, you sketch are kind of right. Um, and then the question is, how do you bring them together? What, what is a faith God, has given us this word for our good. And if you look at the characteristics Paul gives to Timothy of what God's word is supposed to do and God's word in second Timothy, of course, when it talks about the scriptures, what it does is talking about the old Testament, but that would include the new Testament. Ultimately, let me turn here in my uh, NLT little plug for (laughs) Tyndale, your little Tyndale plug. (laughs) plug. Got to give a little NLT to my 10 yeah, people yeah. out there. Yeah, it says all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what's true, make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So if we fall into a camp of thinking it's just telling us things about God, but not speaking into our lives, we're missing a whole lot of what even the most God grace centered apostle in Paul <laughs> is recognizing as being really important. So, yeah. So many good nuggets in there. And even when you're talking about the Kings part, like I, <laughs> with David and Saul, I, I started analyzing that in my head as you were talking. And I'm like, here's the guy who is a head taller than everybody else. He looks yeah. like a King. Yeah. And he should behave like a King. Yeah. And he doesn't. Yeah. And then you have the one guy who doesn't look like a king. Yeah. Who's who's small and weak and seeing just the power of God at work and who God is has chosen. Yeah. And it's it's God works in it's not about the Goliaths, but it's God working his will in ways that the world doesn't always see mm-hmm. or expect. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I and if, that's an important thing yeah. to keep in, in focus. Yeah, for sure. And and if you think about that being the initial mo- entry into David. Think of how that's preparing for Lord Jesus, who is like Bethlehem, scandalous situation where mom's yeah. pregnant, <laughs> um, servant, grows up in Nazareth, which is below the poverty line. Can anything good come out of there? Um, and he, and you just see see that pattern of what our God is doing in, in our King. And, and if we think... I'm happy to go for a secondary application from that is if this is who we want our leaders to be, if this is how our God works through our, our King and certainly the same for his people, he'll, he'll do that. Little guys can do big things too. I guess <laughs> when God's working through them. Right. Um, but, but seeing it within that larger story, all of a sudden changes uh, how we view our relationship with the Lord and how we read the Bible. And, and how we, and this is, I think the hard part, the hard part, like I, I get the, we read the Bible where we see God cares about what's in, it's in the heart and he, he, he's not about the externals, but in a world that's all about the externals, especially within social media and image online. And it's hard to, I mean, even in, in our churches, I've seen so many churches that pass up real men of God, men and women of God over the person who yeah. has the charismatic personality 
but the character is just rotten. And yeah. they might be able to teach the word, but the yeah. character is missing. Yeah. And and that's the part that I mean, we will always look for the person who looks like the king. Yeah. Yeah. We think in our mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um that's good. But so here's what you're doing. Let, let me just say you're putting on scripture as a lens for interpreting and seeing society. You're modeling this sort of, what does a faithful response to these passages look like looking in our world at like, okay, well, let's, let's look at our churches. Let's look at our leadership. Let's look at how we're so focused on celebrity sort of features and potential pastors or, or leaders, but yeah, or are we missing what we how we see God work uh, in this instance with David? Yeah. Well, I I think that is what we often do miss. I mean, it, but what I also liked about your book, and because I'm a big culture person, yeah. And you you brought that out the honor shame the family land, and then you mentioned mountains, and I was like mountains, <laughs> <laughs> what mountains? But but I realized you have Sinai and Hermon and, and you've got the transfiguration, you've got Carmel. I mean, the, and I, and as you said that, I'm like, well, it is the culture. Cause they had the God of the mountains, the God of the Hills, every yeah. mountain had their own kind of God. You had the God of the, it's the pantheon of gods and goddesses yeah. that you have within the ancient world in Rome. I still think we have it in a, a modern day manifestation in India. Yeah. Yeah. All the different gods and goddesses yeah. that are there. And, and we kind of have our own gods and goddesses, not necessarily in the formal religious sense, but I would say we do have our idols that function, you know, those mm-hmm. the functional gods yeah. that we have in our world. Yeah. What role does culture play mm-hmm. in how we see the word in its original context and the and the the faithful response that we need to have in our modern context? Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great uh question. Yeah, because Oftentimes when we'll, what um, Travis is mentioning, so in step three, when you move from like kind of reading a passage, learning to ask, okay, what would this have meant in its original context, right? As you read the Bible, you realize this thing was written 2,000 years ago when you're talking about the Old New Testament, (laughs) then you add thousand years or so in terms or more in terms of the old testament on top of that you're dealing with god writing to people with the conviction that god assumed that they would understand what what he was saying to them through the human author of scripture right so he's speaking to them in ways they would have understood in the original historical context um and uh, there's at times questions, right? Like, wow, well, this just seems like such a different context uh, from from today. How how does this sort of map on to what a faithful response looks like? And there's a couple of kind of just thoughts I'll, I'll throw out there. And Travis, happy to bat this around uh, with you a little bit. I think one of the things that we can do by first listening to what a passage would have meant in its original context is recognize that what the scripture is bearing witness to is God at work in the same historical 
reality continuum that we're a part of today. So in other words, sometimes when we think original historical context, you almost treat it as if that's a different world God was acting in than our world today. No, it's actually the same world. It's just a different moment in culture within time. And so if we begin to see, okay, this is how our God works in our world. You can begin to, if you will, draw analogies to how our God, or to use the theological term, how our self-same God or God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever um, acts, we can begin to recognize this God is our God. And how is what he is saying then in that time, which we're part of that same time continuum, even if we're in a different place within that spectrum, um, how would this God be uh, speaking um, to us in a, in a new cultural moment, but yet as the same God who is acting then? The other thought I would move on to is by giving yourself first to really trying to understand what it would have meant in its original context, you're kind of, if, if you will, laying the seed if you will, for what God wants to do with that as he speaks to you today. Yes, it's rooted in a cultural context, but one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, I feel like, is you might not have a, know the exact right technique of how to move from culture A now, now into our culture, but the Holy Spirit has a way of what, what I speak of as personalizing the scriptures to the very specifics in our lives. And I think a lot of people can testify to this, that they'll read the same passage of the Bible and to- God will minister to them in different ways through it based on where they're at in their life at that time. And I think there's something about the spirit kind of drawing on what we're seeing God saying in light of that and understanding it more clearly in that original culture that just gives God more to, you know, things to work with as he's drawing lines of connection to, to your own life and and your own, um, uh, situation. Um, so those are just a couple, uh, thoughts, but happy to go back and forth on this. No, there, there's so much there. And I actually know that you have a time constraint. So we have to be careful. Yeah, like maybe just getting started. Maybe 20 more minutes or so. All right. <laughs> but while there's so much in the book is you're talking about how to apply it in, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I read a book, someone recommended a book to me and, and this is a little bit off topic, but it, it involves kind of where you're at. You're an Isaiah scholar. Yeah. So Isaiah nine and the government shall be upon his shoulders. <laughs> I just want to talk about that for a second. It's going to take us in a different trajectory. And right now we have the subject that's going on in our culture right now on Christian nationalism. Yeah. Christian nationalism. So someone asked me to read a text. Actually, uh, I think it was Doug Wilson actually writes the foreword for this book on the primer to like Christian nationalism from them. Okay. And in typical Doug Wilson fashion, he says, you need to get it from the horse's mouth, not from the mainstream media, which has a tendency to get it from the other end of the horse. Doug Wilson way of doing it. But in the book, they talk about the government and they mention this passage. And I also read Faithful Disobedience by by Hannah Nation, and she was a guest on the show. 
And Wang Yi mentioned something similar. When we're talking about these interpretive things, and again, now we're going really deep, a little bit off script. This is going to be probably for our subscribers more <laughs> to get them down there deep. How do we look at that? Like, what? How do we understand this government shall be upon his shoulders? Is it in a future sense? Where this in the kingdom? Is it in the, the sense of we need to advocate and go for that in the kind of the social public square idea as Christians fulfilling God's will to make it um, so that Christianity can flourish in the midst of our culture today? So is it is it a, an ideal that we go for, strive for, or is it a future idea? Or is it in the present now? We just operate in this already not yet idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm throwing a lot at you. I know yeah, it's yeah, yeah. different from the book, but yeah. yeah. So uh, I'll just, that, yeah, yeah. Do that, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it hits on the question of how, how do you move from text to speaking about realities today? Right. You know, you, you see in Isaiah nine, it's this beautiful passage of hope where this light shines in the darkness and there's this great joy, war is over and so forth. And uh, another reason for this great joy is that there's a son. Son's been given to us. A child has been born. And among other things that it says about this son, it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, right? So the question is, okay, is it's envisioning, Isaiah's envisioning a time where, where there'll be a king who has a government upon his shoulders, what would that have actually meant back then? Right. And so I think that like one of the starting points would be, so, okay, what did it mean for there to even be a government <laughs> back in the day? Like, and is that the same thing as what it would mean uh, in today's time? And what you primarily see when you look at, I'm just turning there right now. Um, in almost every passage in Isaiah that talks about a future Davidic king, the one kind of attribute and the one thing that a government, w- that, that this king was going to ensure was going to happen was to ensure that there would be justice and righteousness for the poor and the orphan and the vulnerable in the land. This is a, a grand hope. And when that's in place, all of a sudden you can have peace. You see in Isaiah 11, the spirit, he's that shoot coming out of the stump of, of Jesse and, and the spirit comes on him and he has this incredible wisdom. What, what does this wisdom enable him to do to judge the poor, bring justice to the poor and righteousness. So making sure the most vulnerable in society are getting fair treatment in society and in the legal system. So the, the question is, and obviously anytime you mention justice and uh, uh, the social dimension, you're like, well, how do we, how do we map that onto today? What counts as justice? But if we set that aside, the question is, okay, if this is what Isaiah is anticipating, to what extent does Jesus match up with this? What we see is that in his first coming, he came not so much to fulfill this title or this aspect of the Davidic office of setting up a throne in Jerusalem and ruling and establishing justice and righteousness and peace, right? As great as that would have been, right? 
I, I once had a student um, in Australia. He was, uh, we had a number of refugees from South Sudan in Melbourne. And he, after class one day, we were talking about prophetic hope and he came up to me afterwards. He had this bright eyes. He says, oh, Andy, they call professors by first name there. He, they said, Andy, that will be great. And I said, oh, what will be great? You know, I just taught for three hours. I, I didn't know. He said, a king who will rule with justice. And I say, oh, I said, you know something about that? And he said, yes, I do. And he just left with a big smile on his face. And I think what you see in this hope for a king is that his seeing that value of a king who brings justice is probably what the people when Jesus first came were kind of wanting like, oh, a king would come and finally bring justice to us. We've been so mistreated. But Jesus's first coming, I think, is largely wrapped up in um, his role of taking on the mission of the suffering servant, where he would die and experience injustice so that we, the unjust, can be put right with God. And yes, we do say Jesus is the Messiah, the Davidic King, but we look for much of what that Davidic office would involve in, in his second coming. But nonetheless, when we see Jesus's life, although he didn't set up like a political rule, if you will, he was very much embodying the heart of a king who would care about justice for the most vulnerable and poor. And if we think, okay, how does this relate to the government? <laughs> I think it would be a huge, 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 huge stretch to kind of say, well, this is talking about a modern government being upon the shoulders of Jesus. I think more what we're envisioning now, if we think about what God's kingdom is, I think we imagine now in his church, he's reigning over his church. He's calling us to be agents of justice and so forth. Uh, so there is that already-ness that we're kind of working towards, but there's also this grand hope of when he comes again. Uh, again, unless it's the government that's on Jesus's shoulders really clearly, <laughs> I have trouble wanting to take that passage of the government um, and us wanting to create a Christian government, if you will, in our world as being what that passage would be advocating for come on boys we'll see where this road gives up black top and gasoline it won't be enough but i keep shifting into neutral while the river's racing by yeah i'm sitting even as you're talking about the Old Testament, I think that's the, the one of the biggest issues that I always see with Christians. What do we do with the Old Testament? How does the Old yeah. Testament fit? How do we apply it? How do we understand it? How do we savor God within it? What's applicable? What's not applicable? And you, and you spend some time with that, and that's beyond the scope of our conversation today, for sure. But th there still is this idea of how do we understand it so that we can commute? And, yeah. and follow and be obedient mm -hmm. followers of Jesus doing and fulfilling the mission that he, he has uh, called us into as we, as we 
participate with him. And, and I mean, in that he's, he's accomplished it in that his, his life, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, um, that that's all done, but he enables us because he is ruling and reigning and it's not in the fullness of his reign yet. He's a savior elect, if you will, (laughs) (laughs) but he will, he does invite us now to be his ambassadors, his agents. Yeah. To promote that reconciliation and pleading with people to be reconciled into God. And yeah. I, I think that many Christians want to follow. They just have a harder time understanding it, especially when they get conflicting ideas and what they hear in the culture from some of these so-called Bible teachers or, you know, these, these uh, self-identified um, prophets Mm-hmm. Or appointed prophets, if you will. Mm-hmm. And this is where the, the Bible is our great corrective, but not just as a corrective, as as a propositional document, but as a as a, a document that it, it talks about God's longing and heart for us to commune. Yes. To yes. I I'm, you've done that. Yes, yes. And this this book is just such a um that that's the heart of writing the book is giving people that invitation to realize God wants to commune with you through these scriptures and um, where this really the light started going on with me was like I started praying through the Psalms I'd pray through one Psalm a day and if you just even think God's given us a book with 150 Psalms in it if our God doesn't want to commune with us through the scriptures then he wouldn't have given us the Psalms so I begin like kind of just, just because of my training, I'm like, okay, I want to really get a feel for what this passage is saying before I just start going back through and praying it. So I I'd come to the Lord and I just really try to understand it. And then I go back through really line by line, knowing where it's heading, knowing what it's saying, and just like allowing those lines to kind of like be jumping off points, if you will, for kind of communing with God, praising God, meditating on who God is, bringing my everyday circumstances, the things that are weighing on me to him in light of what the scripture is saying. And pretty soon this practice was just so like rich for me. I had the thought that probably many people would have had much before me, but my thought was, why can't I do this with other passages? <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, as if God only wants me to pray with him and meet with him through the Psalms. Right. So, so that would be my biggest encouragement is to like come before the Lord. And again, that my book will give you some tools for like reading um, to really understand the passage and different skills. But as you're applying those, then when we get to step five, it's like, all right, God, let's meet, let's enjoy this. Let's pray. Let let me bring who I am to you and let's talk this through. And I think what we will find through that is if you have a strong kind of foundation in scripture and meeting with the Lord, you'll begin to, as you're engaging our world today, have developed this sort of discernment, or if you will, if I could use the lens of putting on glasses now, where you're beginning to see, okay, the self-proclaimed prophet here is saying things, but it doesn't quite align with the vision that scripture gives, or this this doesn't seem, you know, seem to 
fully um, add up. It, it seems to be, if you will, tainted by, you know, maybe a certain culture's perspective of, okay, this, this is talking about nationalism, Christian nationalism. Is that just something that's gotten mixed in? Uh, to what is the Bible really saying that? And so learning to have that. And then the other thing I, I mentioned in the first part of the book, and, and I, I'm thrilled to hear about how global your audience is. I think one of the great benefits of this world we live in now that's very globalized, although there are negative things about it, is we can start allowing our own blinders blind spots to be exposed where we may fall into like kind of a certain camp and fall into certain ways of reading the Bible. We have an openness to like saying, wow, there are other Christians who like Jesus really loves. I may have completely different political party than them or, or whatever. We're way different social economic class than them or way different country than them or what, but wow, like they're, they're seeing something here that I don't, that I often overlook or, you know, I, and I, so I think that those kind of checks and balances can be really, uh, really helpful um, in light of what you're talking about. How, how do you commune with God through the scriptures when there's so much debate on what it actually looks like to live the Christian life? So even then, I know that one of, one of the parts that we do is we embrace global voices because they act as a yeah. corrective to our own cultural blind, as you said, cultural blind spots, because they they see things differently from apart from our categories. I, I had Van Hooser on, and he mentioned how yeah. difficult it was to do theology in a global sphere, yeah. because he goes theology theologizing is basically you learning how to do theology in your specific context according to what you understand and see about the Word of God and how God intends it. Yeah. Now I know we're we're really getting into deep stuff now, but he he said uh, that's the difficult part is because the categories are so different. What mm-hmm. we care about in the West is not what the other parts mm-hmm. of the world care mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And I was just reading. Uh, I, I had a conversation with Alan Ye, who is at uh, Fuller or Biola. Um, excuse me, Cook Intercultural Studies, and he wrote a book called uh, Polycentric Missiology. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he he mentions that. Every culture has to theologize on their own, self-theologizing. Yeah, He said, but he goes, in our culture today, if you go into America and the West, you'll hear, you know, maybe it's the mode of baptism or the mode of church government, or maybe it's it's uh, the gifts of the spirit or cessational, you know, if it's it's a cessationist position, or maybe you're yeah. Arminian or Calvinist. Those are the categories. In other cultures, that's not what they're talking about. Yeah. They're talking about, and I actually had this firsthand where I had a guy who was in Uganda pulled me aside after I had spoken to a group of young men. And he goes, I think you're the only Westerner that can actually possibly understand what I'm talking about. He said, I have an elder board and two of my elders have multiple wives. Yeah. Well, what do I do about that? Yeah. Or yeah. Another woman approached me and she said, you know, let, let me put a situation out there for you. Let's say that you're, you get pregnant or you're trying to get pregnant. You go to the pastor and he prays for you and it, doesn't happen. And then you yeah. go to the witch doctor and he puts an ointment on your belly and you get pregnant. Is it yeah. human being? Yeah. And yeah. The, wow. The, the spirit world, I mean, their understanding of the Holy Spirit, I think is also very much more robust. Yeah. Yeah. Than ours is. As he even mentioned, he goes, we're not triune, we're biune. We have the father and the son, <laughs> but the spirit, we don't like to talk about very much yeah. because we get nervous. Whereas other cultures are much more in, in tune with this spirit yeah. or experiential yeah. nature of things. Yeah. But I, 
I think it was also interesting. He said, but the father and the son are not, um, how did he say, physically present. He goes, but the spirit is. Yeah. <laughs> he, he talks about how the spirit, Jesus left so the spirit could come. Yeah. And he goes, so we're talking about the ones who aren't here. I mean, again, they are God is omniscient. I'm not yeah, yeah. confuse the attributes yeah. of God. But the spirit, you know, Jesus said, unless I go, the spirit won't come. Yeah. So the, uh, the spirit leads us is to lead us into all truth. And as you mentioned, even the scriptures, they testify about me mm-hmm. and the spirit is to illumine us. And you mentioned that in the book, the illumination, we, yeah. we don't have a very good idea of what illumination is. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about it. And I, and I yeah. think this is where I, I, I found your book to be refreshing in that regard. Yeah, thank you. I, I didn't know honestly much about it. I saw it. I thought, well, let's, let's talk about it. Save yeah. scripture and, yeah. and some other folks that we're friends with, because we're friends on Facebook. We're, we're mentioning it and giving you some kudos. I went, well, I need to check this out. Yeah. yeah. See what's going on. And, and then to read it and see that's your heart. And you can tell your heartbeat is not just to give a guide for this is how to study scripture, but really how to maintain your spiritual heart yeah. and can, and, and understand scripture and a good way to help people, I think, to do so. Andy, I want to thank you. I know we've gone way over the time that you've allotted. Thank you for being so generous. How can people follow and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, well, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. I, I'm somewhat active on there. I, I wouldn't say I'm uh, probably more often than not now on social media promoting Savoring Scripture. But I um, would love to uh, hear from you um, over email, andrew.abernethy at wheaton.edu. Um, and my, uh, bio page on the Wheaton college website stays up to date with my latest books. Um, savoring scripture uh, is, uh, I've said this before the book, I feel like God put me on the earth to write. So really thrilled to get to talk about this, uh, book with you and, uh, Lord willing, I'll have a handbook on the prophets coming out in a few years and other things. So anyways, look, look forward to providing resources that can bless, uh, bless the church. So. Amen. And amen. Thank you, brother, for coming on Apollo's water. Yeah. Great being with you, Travis. I love Andy's heart and I love his story. I also thoroughly enjoyed talking about basketball with him because I don't get to do that very often. But I also love the fact that when his dad asked for a book to help him read the Bible, he ended up writing it. I mean, that's pretty cool. And this isn't an academic book, it's, nor is it a fluffy book, but it's one that took both the academic and the everyday person into consideration. A book meant to truly serve the church. Look, I know we talk to a lot of really intelligent people on the show. Andy is one of them. And sometimes we bring some really big ideas that people have a hard time sinking their teeth into. And we do that because we want to help you to rethink, reimagine, and redeploy in your pursuit of Christ's mission at this moment. But we have to admit that when we talk to a lot of these different academics and scholars, they don't know how to talk to everyday people. They suffer from what some have called the curse of knowledge. It means that they know all of this stuff and they dialogue about it all the time. It's like chess. You know, for them, they don't want to be talking about how a bishop moves on the board. They're talking about advanced strategies to the game. 
For many of us, we're a little bit in between that. We may not be the grand masters, but we're not the newbies either. In fact, some people look at us as the, the leader to show them how to do ministry, how to read the word of God. I mean, we probably disciple other people. We help them understand who God is in a greater way. And that's why this book is so important. It bridges the gap between the academic and the everyday person. And Andy actually gives us six steps to help in that, to understand that. Number one is the posture that we have when we approach the Word of God. Two is the flow of the Word of God, understanding the flow. Third, of course, context. Context is king. And then we have the whole Bible to consider. That's number four. And remembering the point, that's to savor and enjoy God and know what he desires, how we are to live for him, how we can enjoy him. And that, that leads to number six, a faithful response. Now, I have to admit, the first time that I read this book, I thought it was basic. And I realized, though, that we all need a refresher course and we need resources that we can give to other people as they're seeking to learn how to read and understand the Word of God. Savoring Scripture is a great refresher, and I would encourage you to get it. It's not a long book, it's less than 200 pages, and it has some very practical appendices, discussion questions, and illustrations. It's not a dry, dusty book. It is a great way that you can help water the faith of those around you. After all, that's what we're here for. And I do hope that you enjoyed our conversation today. Please feel free to send us a note. Let us know what you want to hear more about. Let us know what you think of this conversation because we want to hear from you. Just feel free to connect with us via any of our social media platforms. And leave us a review because that actually helps those that are dying on the vine that are so thirsty get the refreshing spiritual water that they need. I want to thank you for listening today, and I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on a roll.